In this series of conversations, we'll be discussing global food sustainability with guests who bring a deep understanding of the environmental and cultural challenges facing our society and creative ideas on how to address them. I'm Ash Sweeting. Today we are joined by Dr. Carl Wepking from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Carl's research has focused on the ecology of the soil microbiome, particularly the impacts of livestock antibiotics on soil microbes and their ability to sequester carbon. Well, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. And um, if you'd just like to start by outlining, uh, outlining what you've been doing in terms of your research and what your focus is. I'm the program manager for the Grassland 2.0 project, which is a USDA-funded five-year project um, focused on sort of uh, creating a blueprint for what agriculture in the upper Midwest could look like. And we're doing so with the lens of the ecosystems that used to exist in the upper Midwest, which were sort of perennial prairies and grasslands and um, bison and other large ruminants being pushed around either by uh, indigenous peoples or wolves or but some sort of rotation going on. Uh, so uh, our big push is trying to um, simulate that on farms with rotational grazing and the understanding there being those type of agricultural systems that were here before um, Western agriculture came in and and um, and um, went a different direction, but those systems were um, and them running for for hundreds of thousands of years is why we have such rich soils and such um, great ecosystems to begin with. So trying to put together an agricultural system that can also provide more than just um, inexpensive food, but one that can actually provide um, healthy food for people to eat, healthy environments, healthy ecosystems, healthy communities. And yeah, that's the, that's the um, nutshell of the Grassland 2.0 project. And, and I, I, sorry, go on. Well, as I come to it from a soils background, um, but for me, it's, it's, you know, taking care of the soils is, is a part of that, um, that bigger picture of, of the, of the whole system. But, um, I must say that it, like my, my really heavy focus on soils has taken a backseat to this larger, like creating this blueprint question. Like the soils are at the heart of it, but the different levers uh, all around it are, are um, taking more of the focus. So in, from what um, you're saying, I'm gathering, it's, it's very much looking at it from a systems approach. And you could easily say there are three systems, the animals, the plants, and the soil. Uh, there are many people who might throw in a fourth system in there, which would be the actual rumen microbiome, which is a very vibrant and diverse biological um, entity in itself. So is the, is the focus looking from your perspective, because your background's in microbiology, I believe, but, and so are you looking from that through that lens or, or a much broader lens and where do you see the microbiology yeah. coming into that? So I would say my, my background is much more in, I would go microbial ecology, much more so than microbiology. Um, focus more on the impact of microbial communities as a whole, as opposed to sort of, um, you know, I kind of view microbiology as more individual, um, smaller scale, individual microbes. And, and I kind of take the broader 
um, yeah, either microbial ecology or ecosystem ecology perspective. Um, and uh, to go back to the project, yeah, the, the, um, it, it takes even a, a larger um, scale view of things. We, we've got people focused on, um, we've got a policy team that's focused on what policies could be uh, implemented or what policies could be phased out that would help a transition towards a more sustainable agricultural system. We've got um, financial folks trying to figure out how to um, deal with things like the, the burden of debt that farmers are in at the moment within the current system. Uh, we've, when we go out and interview farmers and talk to farmers, that's one thing we hear pretty constantly is, you know, I'd love to make a switch, but if I went into the bank and told them I was going to take the cows out of the, this brand new barn I just built that holds, you know, X many thousand cows and put them back on the pasture, they would tell me to get back to the barn and keep milking, you know? So trying to figure out how we can um, facilitate some of these transitions with financial tools. We've got a decision support tool uh, team that's putting together um, some web-based tools to, to either sit down with, um, some of them look at more ecosystem scale. So you'd sit down with maybe a, a local politician or some other decision maker on a regional scale and say, what are the levers we can pull and, and what would, how would that impact things like um, various ecosystem services, flooding, uh, nutrient pollution in waterways, nutrient pollution in groundwater, erosion, all these different things. Um, and how can we manipulate ag landscapes and what are the different scenarios that come out with that? And then we also have one that's developed for farm scale where we can sit down with an individual farmer and pull up their farm on a, a digital uh, map and say, okay, what are you doing now? And input all the different factors and see um, uh, how profitable it is. What are the different ecosystem service metrics that come with that? And then let's try a few different other things. Have you ever thought about switching this field over here into um, you know, grazing land for your, for your cows? And, and how does that change this field compared to this field? And, and those kind of things. And there are more teams beyond that. Um, supply chains is another big one, but so we're taking a, a, a much broader view of, of like, um, you know, really the whole, the human side, the, the people side of the, of the system. Because obviously, you know, you mentioned before that there were for thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, there were bison running around um, over hundreds of thousands of acres, but that doesn't necessarily gel with our current systems of roads and fences and towns. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to go away. all the way back to that. But but going on to, a, you know, if you can view that, but on a farm and, and moving them around, because the, the more we find you know, um, these really great ecosystem service benefits only come with well-managed grazing. If it's continuous grazing where the cows just have access to the whole pasture all the time, um, the, the results aren't as good because the, the cows don't do a good job of, of um, providing rest adequately to different areas. So they'll overgraze the good stuff and undergraze the bad stuff. And at the end of the day, you wind up with what we call in this part of the country, um, it's like putting green and thistles. And that's all that's left is the grass has been um, 
munch down to just its nubs and you've got uh, uh, Russian thistles over your head you know, mm. and, and it doesn't lead to a very good system. But if you can move them around and make sure they're rotating, you get a nice, rich, healthy, diverse pasture. So there's, you know, as you mentioned, the obvious benefits of the grazing systems in terms of the regeneration of the land, the recycling of nutrients. On the flip side, there are the benefits of the more modern systems back in the barn, as you mentioned, where you get the more reliable financial performance and profitability. You get much more reliable and consistent um, production, both in terms of, you know, the quantity as well as the quality and the time the product will actually be sold to market. Are you trying to cherry pick the best of both worlds and come up with hybrid approaches where you can get that benefit for the soil and the land, but also give the farmers the tools so that they can manage their productivity and find out how the business the same with that same resolution? Yeah, that's certainly a great point. And, and something we've talked about, um, I, I, the topic hasn't come up recently, but back when the project first got started, we had this debate about, you know, does it have to be 100% grass fed? Like, is that the is that the benchmark? Because we do know that supplementing uh, a grass fed diet with some amount of um, grain can really uh, boost productivity. And so maybe we can fine tune it and say, you know, 80, 20, or, or, or you can find some kind of balance that's, you're, you're still managing the land very well. And you're also getting a, a, a small boost from, from grain. Um, but it's not something that we've really hammered home too much. You know, we haven't, we haven't really delved into um, that research question of like, well, okay, what is the sweet spot there? But um, no, that's certainly, certainly worth thinking about. And, and from, um, from an, economic perspective, uh, there are a good number of economists within our group who have really focused on that, especially for dairy, the profitability side of things. And we've got a good amount of research that shows um, a grass-fed system is, is kind of the, the apex of profitability because your, your feed costs are so low that you can accept a pretty dramatic drop in yield. Um, and if, you're, if, if yield is your worry and your concern, then by, by all means, the grass-fed system is not going to be for you. But if profitability is your concern uh, from, a, from a farmer's perspective, then um, uh, the evidence we've got shows that grass-fed is actually um, dramatically better. And it's just a, instead of, instead of uh, paying for seed and, and feed um, throughout most of the year, you're you're letting the sunlight and the grass take care of it for you. And so your, your input costs are reduced to almost nothing. Maybe you've got to reseed a pasture every couple of years or something, but um, you're, you can accept a big drop in yield and, and still have um, improved profitability based on reduced input costs. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's um, very enlightening. So thanks for that. Oh, and I should also, one, one more detail with that, um, being out of Wisconsin, we've got a pretty big problem right now with um, actually overproduction in dairy. Um, farmers aren't really able to make, uh, and, and this is why there's been a, I don't know if this news has, has traveled around outside of our area, but there's been this huge decline in the number of um, 
dairy farms in the state. The fewer and fewer and the ones that are there are getting bigger and bigger. But the, the real problem is that with overproduction, uh, I can't remember the way they describe it is, you know, when, when times are good, you, you buy more cows and you try to make more milk. And when times are bad, you also try to buy more cows and make more milk because you're trying to. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of this positive feedback loop that doesn't, that doesn't um, bode well for farmers. And any time they've tried to put together like a, um, I can't remember what they call it, uh, where farmers can band together and agree, okay, we're going to cap our, our production at this amount. cooperative marketing board type. Yeah, of yeah. And, and any effort to do that within the state has not been very successful. So um, this is another way to help lower the amount of milk that's being produced um, without harming farmers, you know, by, and, and also giving them a, a better market for it. Okay, on on that note, um, you know, the Midwest is is obviously Wisconsin's famous for its dairy, but the Midwest is very famous for huge amounts of corn and also very vast um, quantities of soy. Yeah, is there discussions, plans, ideas around the reintroduction of grazing animals into those cropping systems? And and if there are, what does that look like? Yeah, that's one thing that we are working on. And so with as part of the group and one of the teams I didn't mention was um, what we call learning hubs, which are these really um, place specific conversations we're having with certain groups. And we've got five of them now going in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and, and the latest one is in Illinois. And each one of these individual locations has their own challenges and their own problems that that community faces. Um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, then how, how to, how to, how would a perennial based system best suit you and in, in your needs? And I'm bringing this up because the one in Illinois, which we're going to go visit in two days and sort of kick off some conversations with them. Um, there's barely any livestock left to even put back out onto the fields down in Illinois. It, it's almost entirely corn and soybeans and, and mostly corn. And so it's going to be a much different conversation down there compared to up here in Wisconsin, where we've got the we've got the cattle. It, it's it's more about getting the cattle back out on the land. Um, down in Illinois, the cattle aren't even really there, and there isn't really this um, um, deep uh, like passed down knowledge of of working in livestock based system. It's just not how farmers view themselves down there. And so it, it's going to be an interesting. Um, interesting conversation and a much different problem. And so our, our goal with these hubs is that we know it's not going to be a one size fits all solution for all these different communities and all of the upper Midwest, there's going to be variability. And so we're trying to see that variability on like a community scale so that we can then say, um, so that it can scale up, you know, so, so that you know, we've talked to this one group in Illinois and, and maybe there's another group in Indiana after that that has a lot more similarities with this group in Illinois. And we can say, okay, here's what worked here. And, and maybe you guys can, can learn from, from our efforts there. Whereas this group up in Northern Minnesota is heavily focused on uh, water quality from a tourism perspective. It's a big uh, fishing recreation area. 
and they're worried that uh, right now that the only li- the only agricultural systems that are up there are mostly livestock, mostly grazing systems. But they're worried that because the winds are starting to shift a little bit towards other types of agriculture, and they're just trying to sort of head that off and and um, protect this this tourist hotspot. Um, so the, very different places, very different problems that they're going going through, and, and we're trying to sort of learn from the, the differences and the similarities. Uh, on on that note, and uh, especially the Illinois side of things, if you if you look at the California almond industry, they have bees or there's bees that are required for pollination, but the almond farmers don't actually own the bees. They have contract mm-hmm. bee farmers that yeah. come in and move their bee herds around the state and around the orchards as is necessary. Are there any discussions or conversations of similar types of models with grazing animals? Yeah. So and there's a, a group we're affiliated with, and I think that this tool was actually put together by a couple of different groups, but um, I'm not gonna put the name of it. it, it they, they, they've been referring to it sort of colloquially as like uh, Tinder for, for, <laughs> for livestock farmers and for people who own land. And the whole idea is that you can log on and say, okay, I've got all this land but I don't have any livestock. And I know that having livestock on here would actually be the best thing for it. And other people can say, okay, I've got the livestock, but I don't have any land for them. And so trying to make these connections that benefit both parties. Um, it'll, probably, it'll probably come to me in 15 minutes what the name of, what the, name of the tool is, but it, it's something that, that we kind of point people towards as a way to solve some of those problems of, I've got the land, but no livestock, or I've got the livestock, but I have no land. And you know, while that might not work well for milking cows, um, that can work well for dairy heifers that, that um, don't need to get back to the barn every day and for uh, beef cattle and also small ruminants. We've got groups that are working on more um, goats and sheep, that kind of thing. Uh, that's, um, that's, great to, that's great to hear about. Um, well, to dig a bit more back into your area of speciality, speciality into the um, the microbial microbial ecology, how do you see? Or just give us an overview of where you see that fitting into the different systems, and and where you see, I guess, the advantages and any shortcomings. Sure. Yeah. Um, but so there are a couple of different ways I, I like to think about it. Um, I guess on the broadest scale, you know, not within my specific research questions about antibiotic use in livestock and, and what that does, but on a, on a much broader scale, we know that the way to, um, or one way to promote more diversity in soil communities, because um, we know that, you know, microbes being kind of the, the foundation, but then you've got to go uh, up from there to mesofauna, macrofauna and the soils and all of those together is what promotes a good, healthy, functioning soil. But um, to make a shift from something like corn and soybeans, which is what we have now, um, and maybe you're incorporating a cover crop in the, in the best, best case scenario, but um, a certain piece of land might only see three or four plants in, in years and years and years. And so it's not getting a, a diversity of um, roots in the ground and the 
um, symbiotic relationships between different plants and different microbes are all different. So to go from what, what can be at worst described as monocultures into more and, and, and uh, annual monocultures with you have living roots in the ground part of the year uh, at the worst at the worst case scenario and best case scenario year round if you've got cover crops going. But to go from that to perennial biodiverse pastures is kind of night and day when it comes to um, well-functioning soils and, and providing, I, I like to refer to it as like a, if you build it, they will come situation. Like you're, you're building all of the right um, um, scenarios for developing strong, healthy soils and, and diverse soils um, in terms of the, both the microbes and macro, um, uh, microbial life within the soil. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a no brainer, but like if, if we're, we try to put together a proposal recently to look at the soil health metrics of, of one versus the other and, and do these transitions. It was uh, the month we were looking for money to pay farmers to de-risk these transitions from annual systems to perennial pasture systems. And there was a soil health component and a big thing we kept thinking is, well, I don't even know why we like, this isn't even a research question. Like we know that this is going to be better. I guess we're just measuring how much better, but there's no, there's no question. It's going to be better from a soil health perspective. Um, I guess it's just how far it, it ticks the needle uh, is, yeah. the, is what we were asking. But um, so for me, that's, that's where I come to this uh, um, grassland 2.0 project is understanding that that like, it's, it's developing a system that, that is more better suited to um, supporting life within the soil. So that's a, a more diverse and vibrant uh, soil microbiome, essentially, across, yep. imagine, um, bacteria, but as well as um, fungi and all sorts of other um, classes of species. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the antibiotic side of things is, a you know, um, I like to I like to talk about it. it's a it's a very interesting question from a human health perspective. In that, um, I used to joke, I still joke, I'm doing it now. But uh, if you would have told, asked me three, four, five years ago, what's the biggest like human health crisis on the on the um, horizon, I would have said, and, and I I still tend to say antibiotic resistance. Um, the pandemic has kind of showed me that maybe that wasn't quite right, but um, there are a lot of good arguments that the way we handle livestock is, is leads up, makes us more susceptible to these types of outbreaks, whether it be bacterial or viral. Um, but the antibiotic side of things, um, when I go and talk with farming groups, I, I you know, I, I, the human health side of it is, is, is huge. I, I, don't, I don't like to downplay that aspect of it. But my research is really much more focused on the impact that um, antibiotics going into the soils has on the, the soil microbial processes and how antibiotics, and just in, that, in the same way that antibiotics can affect a, a bacterial infection on your skin, they can, they can affect the bacteria in the soil. And I think the numbers show uh, 80%, I think about 80% of all antibiotics in the US go to livestock. I think that that number might be a little outdated. Maybe that was as of 10 years ago at this point. But um, 
I imagine it's still, I imagine it's still pretty similar. Um, and then of that, I think the high estimate was, you know, in the 90s percent of those antibiotics wind up in the soil, either active or as an active metabolite of the antibiotic itself. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility to imagine the antibiotics you're giving to livestock wind up in the soil in one way or another. And um, is that all classes of antibiotics, including the, um, the tylens and the ionophores and everything? You know, I'm not so sure about the split. And I know that um, it, it winds up being a global issue very quickly, too, in terms of um, the ability for antibiotic-resistant bacteria to spread. Um, I, 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 and I know that the, um, even though certain types of antibiotics are banned from use in livestock in the U.S., and, and a lot are banned in Europe, they they also continue to be used elsewhere and so long as they're continue to be used elsewhere from from a human health perspective or a efficacy of antibiotics perspective um that winds up being really problematic uh just in that you know because of that horizontal gene transfer capability of 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 spreading antibiotic resistance genes um using it anywhere in the globe i mean we kind of see that with the the viral uh spread of of um coronavirus, but um, it's very easy for antibiotic resistance to spread. So you're, you're, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the, the soil, the issue is that one, by having these antibiotics, 90% of which go through the animals and end up in the soil, you're, you're using the soil as a reservoir for breeding antibiotic um, species, but you're also going to affect the the vitality of the soil microbiome or yeah it, and the way and the way i focus on it is you're, you're affecting then how the soils work and some of our research has shown that it's not even just the soils but you can also affect sort of the plant soil microbe um, relationship do you want to give me a bit of a background in terms of what those impacts are how it works yeah so the the research that we did um focused on the use of uh, two different antibiotics that are both used in mastitis prevention in dairy cattle. Um, interestingly, one is a bactericidal antibiotic, uh, sort of lice bacterial cells, and the other one's a bacteriostatic antibiotic, which essentially, I think it halts a, a protein synthesis pathway that essentially leaves the cell uh, dormant or inactive. And that winds up having sort of interesting functional effects on the, on the soil and the, and the microbes. The way I like to think about it is, you know, if you're like a balloon, you're popping a balloon, uh, but it's a balloon filled with um, nice, yummy, uh, easily accessible resources for the rest of the bacteria or fungi that are there. Um, that's going to be different than if you just leave that balloon locked up um, and harder to access. So with the bactericidal antibiotics, you wind up kind of favoring, it's, it's counterintuitive, but you, you favor the resistant bacteria a bit more because you're creating more um, easily accessible resources that bacteria tend to thrive on more so than fungi. Mm -hmm. And with the other one where you're sort of um, locking up these little balloons full of resources, it tends to favor the fungi a bit more. 
it forms a more recalcitrant system that the fungi tend to do a little bit better in. So interestingly, and then you also have um, community, microbial community shifts within those two because one will affect more active microbes, the bactericidal antibiotic affects more active microbes more so than the uh, bacteriostatic antibiotic. Um, so, the, so the two things that we found with looking at those two antibiotics, uh, one is that with that, um, especially the bactericidal antibiotic, it can drive um, increases in microbial activity or it, um, a better way to think about it is reductions in microbial efficiency. Instead of bacteria having to do their regular day-to-day -day lives of a bacteria, they've got to do that plus deal with an incoming antibiotic that's trying to destroy them. And that either comes with, um, say you turn on an efflux pump so that when the antibiotic compound gets into your cell, you can pump it back out again or you can produce an enzyme that'll break down the incoming antibiotic before it can get to you. But in either one of those situations, that is not like an energetically neutral activity. It's gonna cost you something to do that extra bit of work. And the way we see that is with an increase in respiration. The, the, the microbes are working harder to um, instead of just, yeah, instead of just do their day-to-day -day life, they gotta do that plus deal with the antibiotic. And so they're going to um, respire more carbon and they're going to work through more soil carbon as a result. Okay. So that's why there's less uh, soil uh, carbon sequestration because you're actually increasing the, uh, the work rate, the metabolic rate um, and yeah. respiratory rate of the, the and, microbiome. And I, sh I should say too, that, you know, we're, we're measuring that by, um, we, we, we do measure a soil carbon, but um, the, the main way that we're inferring that is by an increase in respiration within those, within those sites that we've, we've had these experiments going on. Um, so I think part of it, these are kind of shorter term studies. We would anticipate that over the long term, you, you would start to see these decreases in soil carbon. But um, in, in looking at just the amount of respiration coming off, we're sort of inferring that there will be these long-term differences. But so far, we haven't seen as strong of differences within the soil carbon itself, just in the, just in the amount of soil carbon that's being respired off. Because it's a, it's a much larger pool, the soil carbon, than the amount that's being respired. So even yeah. though there's more being respired, it's not really causing a, a, like a very measurable difference within the soil carbon pools. And have you looked at the effects of ionophores on soil, the soil microbiome? I have not, um, and I'm not sure. I, I feel you know I get Google alerts anytime somebody publishes some new work on um, antibiotics, and and um, but no, I, I, not to my knowledge, no. What have, is where, where do you see this? this going forward next in terms of what research is, is needed. And, you know, one of the reasons antibiotics are so prevalent is because they're effective. And yeah. so, you know, whilst we can say it'd be great to not have antibiotics out there, um, they're highly effective and they have enabled a lot of increased food to be produced cheaply. 
So where where do you see this going forward? Yeah, the um, I mean, from my perspective on the ecosystem function side of that, because I feel like, um, again, you can't talk about this stuff without the, the elephant in the room is the human health side of things um, always. But for, that's not really the focus of my research um, other than, it, again, it's the elephant in the room. So it's hard not to mention it. Um, but from the ecosystem side of things and from the ecosystem functioning side of things, I think a better understanding of the more long-term effect, like, like I said before, we, some of the research that we have have done has shown these immediate impacts on, on respiration, but the, the long-term effect and, and what this looks like over time is, is just as important. Um, we've got some new research that we're trying to get published now, uh, hopefully in the home stretch is looking at um, what historical antibiotic usage means for uh, sort of climate change impacts going forward, sort of looking at how um, changes in temperature, to see if changes in temperature over time affect um, different soils based on whether or not they were exposed to manure from cattle that had or had not been given antibiotics. And we found that at low temperatures or moderate temperatures, it doesn't seem to, they seem to behave similarly, but at higher temperatures, they start to diverge, um, kind of indicating that even though there might not seem to be big issues with the soil microbes um, at sort of ambient temperatures, if you do have these extreme temperatures, they can start to shift and start to show, um, reveal that there were in fact underlying differences between these um, microbial communities and, and how they function. So that would be between a temperate and a subtropical sort of climate zone or... So we looked at we looked at a range of temperatures, uh, 15 degrees up to uh, 30, 30 degrees Celsius, Celsius, Celsius. Yeah. And um, I think the implication there, because it was over a shorter period of time. But, you know, if uh, the way I look at it is if you have sort of unseasonably warm temperatures for a while, you'll have these you'll have these um these shifts that could be taking place you know if, if you have a hot dry spell where the soils are hitting some extreme temperatures um you, you might see that that soils that have been given one type of manure will behave differently than ones that have been given a different type of manure based on whether or not livestock have been given antibiotics and what what's the differences in behavior of the soils that you observed so the um for the ones that had not been given antibiotics, the microbes seem to be able to, um, they, they, what's the best way to put it? Where they have been given antibiotics, the microbes seem inhibited at a high temperature. At a high temperature with, you know, um, you can imagine more resource being available. We, we, we maintained moisture throughout so that um, there wasn't an interaction of, of moisture and, and um, temperature going on. We tried to hold that as, as steady as possible. Um, but with increasing temperature, the um, bacterial community, microbial community in the soils that had not been given antibiotic kind of explode. They, they, the microbial activity really skyrockets. Whereas the ones that had been given an antibiotic, it kind of plateaus at a high temperature. Um, so th the way I think about it is that the antibiotics seem to be 
um, either, well, the, the legacy effect of those antibiotics has created a community that isn't as well adapted to sort of take advantage of those um, high availability of resources that come with increasing temperature. And the, so that um, at, at higher temperatures, you could imagine, uh, because a lot of how microbes access resources in the soil is through extracellular enzymes. And with increasing temperature, enzymes can be more effective. Or they can they can hit into a better optimal range at, at warmer temperatures. So that's looking at how how they cycle nutrients and um, which will then make those nutrients available to the plants. Yeah, and yeah. That would if the nutrients are coming out of the soil, then that would you could potentially um, conclude that you need less synthetic fertilizer because you're, you're utilizing what's already there. Yeah. And, and another interesting side of the fertilizer, um, question, the, one of the studies we did previously looked at, um, how carbon and nitrogen moved through the systems based on whether or not a system had been exposed to one or two different types of antibiotic or a manure from cows given antibiotics. And in one, we found that plants were actually taking up more nitrogen out of the soil than it, when exposed to manure from cows given an antibiotic. Plants were able to take up more nitrogen from the soil than ones that had not been exposed to manure from cows given an antibiotic. So control versus hmm. antibiotic in, in essence. Um, but interestingly with that, you, you'd, you'd think like, oh, is this a good thing? Is this growth promoting? in that it's, it's causing this uptake in, in nitrogen from the soil. But we did not find that to be the case. We didn't see any difference in plant growth between these, these plots. And it seemed to be because in those ones where they were, the plants were taking up more nitrogen, they were also losing more carbon. So it seems to be more that trade-off of photosynthesized carbon turning into sugar and then the plant funneling that down to the soil um, plants are shown to do that if they're missing some key nutrient like nitrogen, like phosphorus or, or micronutrients as well, to try to stimulate the microbial community in the soil to go find what they need or, you know, to go help them uh, access the resources that they need. And so um, it seems like that trade-off between carbon and nitrogen winds up as sort of a net neutral. So even though they are taking up more nitrogen from the soil, um, we're not seeing a difference in having to plant, pump more energy plant growth to get the balance of nutrients they need. Yeah. Have you ever looked at the interaction between the the soil microbiome and the actual ruminant microbiome? I have not, but the, uh, there were some researchers that we collaborated with out of Virginia Tech that that were looking at the. Um, the rumen microbiome and then how that impacts the soil microbiome. And I, I can't, I can't really, um, I don't have their work too fresh on the top of my head. The, the one thing I find interesting, we actually don't, for one of them, we don't detect the antibiotic at all within the manure itself. You know, of the two antibiotics we looked at, it was below detection. Um, and for the other one, it was extremely, extremely low. But um, we still see the sort of anticipated ecosystem level effects of those two different antibiotics, even though we can't really find the, the antibiotic itself. So there is some thought that it's not so much the antibiotic going into the system that's causing these differences. 
as much as it's the effect of the antibiotic on the microbial community within the, within the manure, within the rumen microbiome, that going into the soil that's driving the differences. And that's, I should add, that's another interesting avenue for research is trying to disentangle whether or not, because um, it could also be that the reason we're not detecting the antibiotic, but we're still seeing the effect of it is that it's um, a metabolite that the, um, we're, so we're not able to detect the antibiotic itself, but if it's broken down into two pieces, it, you know, we're not, we're not seeing those two pieces together, but they could both still be active and causing um, uh, an antibiotic type effect within the system, even though we're not seeing the antibiotic itself. That's fascinating. And, and, you know, in the way the world works, where it's all about testing and identifying if, if you've got no detectable levels, but you still have impact, that um, means that it's, it's, it's harder to, to work with. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it for for us, it, it, those seem to be the two best explanations. Is you've um, again, I like to sort of anthropomorphize microbes, but like you've you've stressed out the what one option is you've stressed out the microbial community in the gut to the point where when they wind the, when they wind up in the soil, um, they come in kicking and screaming and saying we're all under attack, the sky is falling, we're all going to die, <laughs> the the bacteria in the soil hear that, get the signals from that, from the microbes and decide, oh, okay, uh, I guess we should all um, be stressed out and, and uh, work really hard to, to um, get rid of any incoming antibiotic, but maybe the antibiotic isn't even there. You know, maybe they're, maybe they're just stressed out because they're picking up on signals from the microbes that are coming in. Um, and then the other option is the antibiotic is there it's just as a metabolite and harder to detect. That is absolutely fascinating because have you heard of the, the concept hormesis? Uh, no. It's, so it's, it's when organisms through various not really well-known um, mechanisms can read their environment. So from a human health perspective, when you eat stressed plants, it seems to stimulate parts of your body that are protective or protective genes. And that's essentially the, the evolutionary concept is that the earlier you can understand that you're likely to be under a system of stress, the more the earlier you can adapt and protect your body against it and the more likely you will to survive whatever that stress event is. And it's led to the belief that there are various small molecules or other communication um, molecules in, in that plants produce or certain organisms produce when they're stressed and then other organisms can t detect those. And this is a... What you said there was something along that same concept on a microbial level. So, you know, I guess I guess this is an area that needs uh, quite a bit of extra research. But by stressing, you know, I guess the the hypothesis was by stressing the rumen microbiome, the microbes that pass through the animal will then subsequently stress the soil microbiome through these unknown. Um, communication yeah, pathways. I do know there's uh, a growing body of research on sort of how microbes communicate with each other through 
things like quorum sensing and quorum quenching um, molecules that that get passed within. So you know, quorum sensing if bacteria can sense that they've got enough cells around to carry out an activity that would have been sort of density dependent. But, you know, it, it wouldn't be an activity that'd be useful to do it if you were just the one cell working on your own. But if you can sense that around you, you've got quorum, that you've got a good amount of microbes there, you can then, uh, you know, once it hits a critical mass, you can switch on and, and carry out some activity that would be beneficial for, for all. Um, and I think there's some thought that there are certain antibiotic compounds that actually function in that way, that they're actually, they, they can have an inhibitory effect on some bacteria, but they're also used as a quorum sensing compound. And I, I think that's one of the explanations for how antibiotics developed within the soil to begin with, or within microbial communities to begin with was as communication. And mm. um, is there... You know, you've talked about the effect of the antibiotics coming through the animal into the soil, onto the soil. What's the the longevity of that effect? Is it how long does it take for the antibiotics to to break down in the soil and the effect to be be no longer there? Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. Um, the you know, and the, and the the work we did sought to not so much see how, say you expose the soil to manure from a cow given an antibiotic um, and then leave it alone and see how long it takes to sort of rebound back to, um, or just to see what trajectory it goes on afterwards. Um, th that wasn't the direction that our research went in, but certainly um, this is one of those, this, uh, growing up or coming up through graduate school in like an ecology focus, you realize kind of quickly and, and it's a good, it's a good um, discussion question, but funding cycles have a very clear impact on the type of research that gets done with the exception of like some like really good long-term ecological studies and things like that. But like, you're kind of limited to this like three to five year snapshot and um, as I was leaving the project, it definitely crossed my mind, like, oh, someone should just keep sampling this for the next like 10 years. Like somebody should just keep coming back and seeing, okay, we stopped, we've stopped adding manure and antibiotics. What does it look like a year down the road? What does it look like five years down the road? What does it look like 10 years down the road? And I think that would be great research to do. Um, our work more sought to see with continued exposure to antibiotics, does the system eventually level off? I mean, does it, that essentially, does the system get so used to this antibiotic coming in that it, um, that that's the new normal, that's the new status quo. And that was part of that temperature manipulation experiment we did to try to figure out, okay, they've been exposed to antibiotics. I think it was for 32 months, monthly manure additions for 32 months. Then what happens when you put them off on these different temperatures? And we still see differences, even though with ambient temperature, they seem to function about the same. And so that, that for us, that was interesting to see that, you know, they didn't acclimate to it after 32 months of, of continued exposure to it. Um, it seems like it, it either caused enough of a difference early on that that maintained or that there wasn't really this adaptation taking place. Or if it was, it was superficial. Mm -hmm. And what's, 
what's um what's next in terms of um your research and and i guess ways of implementing the results of that going forward well i think so to me this is part of why i i've kind of um pivoted towards working with this grassland 2.0 project is that um i i do see that the the use of antibiotics as um problematic from an ecosystem perspective, but uh, very much more problematic from a public health perspective. And um, any way that we can decrease the need for the use of antibiotics, say by reducing the density, um, livestock density that then uh, is benefited from the use of antibiotics. So trying to get more, uh, more farms, uh, less concentrated livestock, trying to develop agricultural systems that, that move in that direction, to me is the, the, the next step for it. So it's not so much the antibiotic specific investigations, although I think we've talked about, there are a couple, there are definitely a couple great questions that somebody could ask within that, within that about um, what is the long-term uh, ramifications once antibiotics have stopped going into the system. All of those would be would be great to ask. Um, but my work has now pivoted much more towards, okay, how do we develop agricultural systems that are less dependent on antibiotic use? And again, like you said, not no antibiotic use. I, I, and and I, it, it, sh it just needs to be um, less antibiotic use, more appropriate antibiotic use as needed as opposed to prophylactic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think a more decentralized agricultural systems would, would function better from, from that perspective as well. And you, I imagine you speak to quite a few farmers with the work you're currently doing. How do they take those points and those ideas or concepts? So the, I think the the... Now the carbon, I mean, soil carbon gets people's attention much more so now than, and, uh, than maybe it did um, five, 10 years ago. I, I, you know, I feel like soil carbon is such a hot topic at the moment, given the development of carbon markets and, and things like that, that farmers tend to resonate with, with, those, with those ideas. You know, that, um, and I like to talk about it too, that it's, um, I'm just talking about one little land management decision or one little farming management decision, whether or not to give a cow an antibiotic. But even that little decision can have repercussions on how your system functions or how your farm functions. And um, so I, when I talk with it, when I talk with this topic about this topic with farmers, I, I like to start with, you know, this is about antibiotics, but it's not it's about land management generally. And the idea that there are so many different levers you have at your disposal and each one of them can have effects that are unintended on your farm and trying to understand all of those can be overwhelming, but here's just one of them. And, and here's the effects that we see based on this one management decision. And because a lot of what we're talking about now with the Grassland 2.0 project is about trying to de-risk and encourage different land management practices and different farming practices. So trying to get farmers to think about um, 
different possibilities, different options, and, and how they all can have sort of different um, ecosystem level impacts. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time, mate. Is there is there anything else that um, you think we should discuss that I we haven't so far covered? And I, even from like the the Grassland two point perspective, you know, the, in terms of being gray areas, um, you mentioned earlier, you know, that um, the current model is really good at at producing calories. You know, it, the the current model is really good at at being efficient, and efficiency is often what is what is touted. You know, we can get more uh, from a dairy perspective. We can get more gallons of milk out of uh, out of a Holstein than we than we could 50 years ago, and and we can do it um, you know really efficiently. And so, the elephant in the room is always um, where is the where is that sweet spot of we're, we're getting enough food to feed everybody and we're doing so without um, doing too much damage to the environment. And in an ideal situation, like not damaging the environment, but can we find that sweet spot of feeding everyone healthy, nutritious food and uh, at least holding the environment neutral as opposed to um, heavily damaging it. And, you know, that's, that's the, that's the sweet spot we're, we're trying to, figure out i think back to what you said earlier about you know the one of the one of the shortcomings of the modern food system is that it's been so successful at producing lots of calories very efficiently which means it's much if something's very successful at doing one thing it's much harder to change it because you've got to backpedal more and the flip side of that is we've created these one-way systems. You've got nutrients um, that come from our soils. They get grown into grains or into crops or eaten by animals. They get put on trucks and they go to cities and then they get eaten and then they get pumped out to sea generally. So in 50 or 100 or you know, 500 million years, you know, outside New York City and the area outside London, there's going to be some monumentally fertile and the Yangtze River areas. But that's in 50 or 100 million years when the geological activity has uplifted them and turned them back into soils. Yeah. Um, so in, it's, in the meantime, we have what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico, which, um, and there's some really interesting um, relationships being built there to try to get. Um, you know, shrimp farmers down in Louisiana to come up and speak to farmers in the Midwest and have the farmers in the Midwest go down and spend a week with some shrimp farmers in Louisiana and see how um, the two are connected and, and that the um, better land management up in the upper Midwest, the Mississippi Basin can improve the livelihoods of, of these shrimp farmers and anybody who's relying on the, the Gulf of Mexico fisheries for, for uh, a living. And um, yeah, it's all it's all related, and uh, and that's uh, um, there's another. Speaking of, you know, it's one way. One of the colleagues I work with likes to refer to the current type of agriculture as essentially it's more like mining than it is anything else, and um, I, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it as well. So it's an extractive industry rather than a a circular industry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much once again, mate. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. So thank you yeah. for your time. Absolutely. Um,
Thanks for the invite.